Good morning, everyone. Hope you are, hope it is worthwhile to come inside from the beautiful weather that we have outside. If we could move this class outside today, I absolutely would. I don't know, who is it that says it's always better in here than it is out there? It's questioning it today. It's just so nice <laughs> to enter the cool part of the year here. Um, <laughs> welcome back to School of the Word. We're going to continue this week in um, probably the last in, in this part of, of studying how the promises of Christ revealed in the Old Testament, um, as, as revealed in the person of Christ in the New Testament, affect daily life. Um, just really focusing on, on how do I live differently at work, at my house, um, in, in the way I think about the future, based on the promises that we see in Christ, the person that we have revealed in him. Last week, specifically, we looked at how Jesus teaches us to live as he resolves the conundrum of the Old Testament, um, where a righteous God relates to sinful people in love. And we see that Christ, in Christ, he reveals that, that those are not two things in tension, but they are united in the person of Christ, in the character of God as he relates to people. And that informs how we face conundrums in our own life when we uh, deal with difficult situations and struggle to know how to respond, um, not to compromise on righteousness, but to express God's love to people who may disagree with, um, with God and been living in rebellion to him. Um, and before we move on, just a, a quick clarification on that. Last week I had a conversation after the message um, where someone just came up and was asking, hey, what did you, did you mean this, or, or what would you say to this circumstance? And just as an aside, I would say uh, definitely, if you have questions about something that we say, or um, I, am, I am not the word of God, I am by no means infallible, and I, I certainly don't say everything as clearly as I would always want to. Um, so if you hear me say something and you have questions about it, you think maybe you disagree about it, please, I'd love to have those conversations. Um, come and talk to me afterwards or catch me in the hallway. Um, and, and, but what was clarified last week was that when I say we face conundrums in our own life and, and struggle to know how to respond to uh, issues like uh, people attracted with homosexuality or, or tell you that they're transgender, what, what I meant by that is not that the Bible is not clear about those topics. Right, I know. You might look at me, you might look at my beard and my jeans and say, like, I'm just not sure what this guy thinks about everything. But, um, <laughs> but, but the, let me just say this clearly. The Bible is clear on the definition of marriage as one man and one woman. I think the Bible is clear on the... Um, idea that gender is a definition given by God, not something we think of for ourselves. I, don't, I think the Bible is clear on many of these topics. What's difficult is how to respond to people who disagree with that. Right? Once you understand what is God's righteousness, what he defines as right, how do you also respond in love to someone who totally disagrees with that, who's living in rebellion against God? And that's the conundrum that is resolved in Christ. Um, so just want to make sure that, that everyone's clear and I was clear on what I'm saying there. And today I want to kind of just turn that same idea, the, the unity of the righteousness of love in Christ, and just turn it and say, what else is united in the person of Christ? Because I think we also see that in Christ, he unites power with weakness. And also he unites holiness with humility. And we're going to see those aren't totally different than the concept of uniting love and righteousness. 
Um, there's there's going to be a lot of similarities, but when we turn it and just look at this different facet, I think it gives us more insight into how to live and how to respond to conundrums in our lives, to a world that is living in rebellion to Christ. And, and I think what it helps us do is it clarifies the definition of power, right? I think sometimes we have trouble responding to people with love and righteousness because we misunderstand how we have power in Christ, right? And I think it's, what I mean by that is it's possible to fight for the right things in the wrong way, right? And here's an example of this would be from the, the sage depictions of Star Wars, right? If you've seen the, the Return of the Jedi, and if you haven't seen it, it's been decades, so I'm going to spoil this for you. Um, Return of the Jedi, where Luke Skywalker goes to fight Darth Vader, Right? And it's this final fight. And, and also there is not only Luke and Darth Vader, but Darth Vader's master, Emperor Palpatine. Right? And so they get there, and there's this confrontation, and they begin to fight. And what becomes clear in the middle of the fight is that the ultimate bad guy, Emperor Palpatine, actually wants Luke Skywalker to win. Because he knows that if Luke Skywalker kills Darth Vader, who he's found out is his father, and he does that in fear and in anger, that won't actually be a victory for the light side. Because in that moment, in that action, Luke Skywalker will become the next bad guy. He will become the next Darth Vader, and that's what Emperor Palpatine wants. Not just for, he he doesn't care that Luke is fighting for the right thing so long as he fights in the wrong way. It will be a victory for the dark side. And so Luke realizes this, and he throws away his lightsaber, and he refuses to fight. And in that action, he wins a different kind of victory. Because you know, as the the twist of fate at the end of the story, in that action, Darth Vader is redeemed. And he finds that, that he, instead of destroying Luke Skywalker, his son, he actually destroys Emperor Palpatine, throws him down a chute that somehow gravity works in space. And the light side wins. Right? It's, and, and that's a different kind of victory. Luke not only fights for the right thing, but he fights in the right way. And I think there's a lot of wisdom for the church in this illustration because we look around the world and we can see that, that there's a lot of things we want to fight for. A lot of we want to see God's kingdom established on this earth. But I think we're often tempted to fight for those good things in the wrong way. We use the power that comes from the world, the power that comes with strength and force, pun intended, and, and instead of fighting in the power that comes through weakness, as we have revealed in Christ. So let's, let's look at this. How do we see this in the person of Christ? Because the first thing we see is that Jesus actually had a ton of power. Right? This is Matthew 8, and this is actually Matthew 8, not Matthew 5. Like, I had the wrong reference last time. Got some grief about that. Matthew 8, starting in verse 24, we see, look at the power that was in the person of Jesus. It says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that their boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, that's Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? 
Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? One of my children's, children's Bibles says that, that when Jesus speaks here, the wind and the waves recognize the voice that had created them that had spoken them into existence, and so they obeyed. And the response of the disciples tells us how we should respond to this situation. This man just speaks, and nature obeys him. Right? We describe someone as a force of nature when they're particularly good or have a ton of strength around something. Jesus is not a force of nature. He is the force that created all the forces in nature. This is a sort of power that we've never seen in anyone else. And then when he gets to the other side, see what happens. Starting in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And then we get the same sort of reaction. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Again, the response of people to Jesus' display of power is fear and terror. The people come out asking him to leave. And you kind of wonder if some of them have pitchforks shaking in their hand. Right? Who is this man? We were afraid of those demon-possessed men, but this man commanded them with a word. Just imagine that. With a word, Jesus commands the wind, the oceans, legions of demons. He tells his disciples right before he dies that at his words, 12 legions of angels would come and fight for him. Just with a word. Right? There's no question that Jesus had an immense amount of power. If he had so decided to conquer and establish his kingdom with the power of his strength, he would have been ruling Rome by the end of the week. But he didn't. When he came, he did not come as one with immense power and armies at his back. He united the power of God to the weakness of a human form. Right? Notice what he was doing before he commands the winds and the waves. He was sleeping, exhausted, in the bottom of a boat. Why does someone with that amount of power need to sleep at all? Or maybe the better question is, why would God choose to take on this form, to take on the form of a man? Right? When he comes to establish his kingdom, he becomes a human with all the limitations that that involves. He sleeps he grows weary. He needs to eat. We see it, that he grew up as a child, right? He had to grow in wisdom and in stature. It seems that he maybe needed solitude, Luke five fifteen to 16. But now even more that report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. 
but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. I'm not sure if, if he was just exhausted by the amount of people and needed to withdraw, or if he's just intentionally choosing not to receive the power and influence that comes by gathering great crowds. We see that he makes himself subject to the realities of sorrow and difficulty in the world. John 11, 33 to 35. This is Lazarus has just died, and Jesus is just about 20 minutes away from raising him from the dead, and we get this story. When Jesus saw her, that is Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. He could feel the emotion and the sorrow and express it through tears. He had real limitations. He's no, he's no demigod from Greek mythology, right? Despite his ability to command things with a word, he's no Hercules. And he's not running around doing superhuman feats of strength without any need for any help. He's born in a, on the wrong side of the tracks. He's born to nobodies, right, from Galilee. What good can come from Galilee, people would say? with no wealth, no influence, no strength as we would understand it in human form. Why? Why would he come in such a form of weakness with all the power that he had? We don't understand this until we again look at the picture of the cross. To see this is consistent with the, met, with the activity, with the uh, mission which he came to accomplish. That his power not only was united to weakness, but his power was shown in his weakness. Because the picture of the cross, the moment of his greatest weakness, where he is taken, beaten, bloodied, naked, fainting, and ultimately suffocating to death on a cross. This ultimate picture of weakness is the ultimate picture of his power. Because in that moment of weakness, he defeats the greatest enemy this world has ever seen. He defeats death itself. He defeats the sin that had come into the world. And this is the way that Jesus exercises power. Not through his strength, but in weakness. And this is the picture that we have when we see this is how Christ accomplishes his kingdom. It's right. When we look out at the world and we say we want to see Christ's kingdom made great here, it's right for us to pray for that. It's right for us to look out at the wrongs in the world and want to see them made right. Jesus teaches us to pray for that. But recognize that there's two ways that Jesus can make the world right. He can come in the power of his strength or he can come in the power of his weakness. And he will do both. We know at the end of days, he will come in the power of strength. He will win a final victory. He will crush every enemy. There will be no wrong left. Every wrong will be made right. No one will be able to oppose him. But recognize in that moment, no one is saved. When Christ comes in strength to rule with a rod of iron and establish his eternal kingdom, every enemy is crushed. Everyone opposing him in that moment is destroyed forever. 
that kind of power, it doesn't corrupt Christ. He's not like Luke Skywalker with, if he were to come in, in strength and force that, that he would become the bad guy. That's, it's not wrong for Christ to come and destroy evil. It won't corrupt him. It's, there's nothing wrong with him doing that. But when he does that, he's not building so much as destroying. And so if you want to see this world redeemed, if you want to see families come to him, if you want to see your neighborhood or your community redeemed and restored and made right, if you want to see your nation turn to Christ, you don't want his power of strength. That doesn't save anyone. If you want to see this world redeemed, you need the power that comes in weakness. This is how he's chosen to build his kingdom. And this is how we follow him. We build with a different kind of kingdom. We don't need strength. We don't need influence. We don't need power. We need to follow Christ in his weakness. Perhaps, perhaps though you look at the world and you look at, at the way that it lives in rebellion against Christ and you say, I'm, I'm not looking for power. I want to see God's name made great. I want to see his name honored and, and glorified the way that he deserves to be. Well, amen, yes. But let me ask this question. What does the glory of God look like? What is it that we want to see made great? What is the holiness of God that we want displayed? What has he shown us that he wants to make seen in all of the world? Again, let's, let's look to Jesus. What does he display in the holiness of God? First, what is holiness? Let's, let's look at the word a little bit. You, I'm going to use holiness and glory as, as pretty similar in this. And I recognize they're a little bit different. But, but you think of them and you might think of a like passage like Isaiah 6, verse 3, where Isaiah sees the angels calling to one another and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? And if you've been around Christian circles long enough, you might have heard the, the idea that holiness is like the idea of separateness. And, and there's something to that. But, but D.A. Carson points out that, that if you just replace the word holy here with the word separate, you kind of lose something. Right? If the angels are standing calling to one another, separate, separate, separate is the Lord of hosts. It's not quite the same, right? It's a little bit different. Right? Maybe it's better to say that, that he is so far above, no one can come close to him because of the greatness of who he is. You, you might think of something like the sun, right? which is so bright you can't look at it directly. Kind of like these lights right here. It's so hot it's so that you can't get close to it without being burned up. Right? The, the place of the holy of holies in the temple was, was a place like, uh, that, that you go at your own peril. Right? Sort of like stepping into the middle of a nuclear reactor. It's nothing wrong with it, but, but you, as just a normal, frail human, it's full of sin. If you come close to the Lord in your lack of perfection, you might get burned up. Right? So it needs to be separate because of what it is. Because it's so good, so brilliant, so bright. We can't come near to it. And then in this passage, glory is a little bit like the reflection of God. It's a fuller description, and it includes things we can see. Sort of like if you took a prism and, and refracted pure white light into a rainbow of colors, now that you can see with the visible eye. 
The whole earth is full of this glory. So you see things like you stand on the top of the Rocky Mountains and see the massiveness of the expanse around you. Or you, or you consider the intricacy and the complexity and the detail of the human eye. If you look at a rhinoceros and consider the power of something that could just knock your car over if it felt like it. You look at the Mariana Trench and consider the mystery of the depth that we can hardly even get to with all our modern technology. You look at, uh, if you watch National Geographic and see the, the varied brilliance and brightness of tropical birds and wonder at just this riot of color and excessive beauty, you consider the wonder of a mother with a newborn baby. And these are all refractions of the glory of God, bits of pieces that we can begin to understand what the pure light itself might be like. That's what holiness and glory are like. And the place where we've seen this most clearly is in the person of Jesus himself. The closest we've ever gotten to seeing the pure white light itself comes through the revelation of his son. And we see this in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. Starting in verse 2, he says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And that's the right response. You'd be terrified, too, if the holiness of God was shining in your midst. You read this passage, and it should make you think of things like Exodus 19, where the Israelites are gathered around the mountain, and God comes down to speak to them and to Moses, and there's lightning and flashes and a cloud on the mountain, and the people are terrified. Or you might think of of 2 Samuel 7, where Solomon is dedicating the temple. And fire comes from heaven and consumes his offering, and a cloud fills the temple with the glory of the Lord. And that's what's happening here on the mountain with the disciples. The holiness of God is descended and shining through. The sun has come down and is shining out of the face of Jesus. And you would expect in this moment the holiness of God to march forward and consume and establish itself in all the earth. But what do we see? What happens after Matthew 17? Where does holiness go? The holiness that we see in Matthew 17 descends from the mountain until it reaches the humility of the crucifixion in Matthew 27. And along the way, we get pictures of Jesus' humility. The very first thing he does when he comes off the mountain is he takes time to heal a boy possessed by a demon that the disciples had been unable to heal. And then he goes on and he begins to pay. He pays a tax that he explains to Peter. He says, Peter, you realize I don't have to pay this tax. I should not be subject to this. And yet, he pays it anyway. He goes on to spend time with children. He says in Matthew 19, 13 to 14, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, 
But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. These children weren't the most needy people. They, they weren't the most uh, respected people. Right? These are just parents who want Jesus to pray for their kid. And the disciples are saying, well, we don't have time for that. Did you see what just happened on this mountain? We're going to do something. But Jesus says, no, this is what I have time for. And the disciples should have understood that. Because one chapter before in Matthew 18, Jesus had explained to them what greatness is like in his kingdom. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatness of the kingdom of heaven. It's not, it doesn't come in grandeur or all of these achievements or what you can accomplish or how great you are in this life. The greatness of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is in humility. You skip over to John and we see Jesus picturing them in his own actions. And notice, he's going to wash the disciples' feet, but notice why he does it. John 13, verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Notice why he does this. Not, not because he considers himself lower or just that we're all equal here. He gets down to wash the disciples' feet because he knows that God has given all things into his hand. And that he's going back to God. He, so he ties a towel around his waist. Knowing the great place that God has given him, he humbles himself. What a picture this is. You can, you can imagine what it looks like. He's put aside his robe. He's wrapped in a towel, slightly awkward situation, washing the disciples' feet. This is no show. This is a true moment of self-lowering. Paul explains how this logic of the kingdom's greatness works in Philippians 2. Starting in verse 5. He tells us to have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus is equal with God, he lowers himself. And because he humbles himself... God exalts him. Do you see how this works? His glory is his humility. His humility displays his holiness. They're not two separate things. They are one. And we see this ultimately in the cross. Again, the ultimate display of his humility. Lowering himself to the point of death. 
is the thing that we will remember him for forever. This is the reason in Revelation 5, he is called worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Not because he was just great, but because he was slain. Holiness in humility. These are the pictures that shape the kingdom of Christ. And when we go to relate to a world in rebellion to him, we must hold these ideas with us. Understand that we not only work for the good of the kingdom, but we work for it in the way that Jesus taught us. Not with the power and strength, but with the power that comes through weakness. Not with glory and holiness as the world might think of it, but with the holiness that displays itself in humility. We aren't told to take up a sword and fight for victory. We're not told to paste his banner as high as we can. We're told to follow Christ. We take up our cross and we follow him. That's how Jesus works. That's how we live and relate to this world. And I think the test of whether we believe this or not, whether we've understood the way we are to follow Christ, comes a lot when we encounter Situations where we feel like we're losing power. Right? I, I, don't know, I don't know the reality of the world. I don't know the future of the world. But I, I do know this. If you listen to Christian voices today, it sounds like a lot of us are afraid that we are losing power. That may be true. That may not be true. There's a whole, I have, if you want to talk to me about it, I have a whole lot of thoughts on this. That's not the point. I think, though, what I would speculate, though, is that, is that I, I think it's probably the case that my children are going to grow up in a world where their teachers will promote homosexual marriage and the acceptance of transgenderism. Right? I don't know for sure if that's the case, but it seems pretty likely. I think it's pretty likely that they're going to grow up in a world where most of their friends do not go to church. I think it's pretty likely that they're going to grow up in a world where Christian values is not on the political platform of the right or the left. It's not even on the option box. And these are the kind of, again, I don't know if that's true, that's not the point, but I think this is the, those are the kind of things that cause us to feel like we're losing power. To feel like this world isn't the one that I wanted. This world isn't the way that it's supposed to be, and we've got to do something about it. And you know the voices. You've heard this. If you listen to um, Christian podcasts or Christian radio or just Christian conversations, there's fear that we're losing power. And listen, I'm not saying you've got to love those things. I'm not saying that those aren't a big deal, that it's make me comfortable. I don't love those things. I wish that was not the case. But I know this. Those things should not freak us out. We should not fear if we have understood the way that our God works. Because he works in weakness. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 28 teaches us this. Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. 
And he's trying to get them to recognize that this is the way our God works. He takes what is weak. He takes what the world thinks has no power, no ability. It's in those moments that he does his greatest work. Just like the moment where Luke throws away his lightsaber and you think he can't possibly win. But we don't just trust the writing of George Lucas to to make that ending work out. We trust that it's in those moments that God works. When we have no power. When we are not held in honor. This is just where God wants us to be. This is just where he does his greatest work. I was listening to a podcast by Matt Chandler, a a pastor in Dallas, Texas, talking about just what it's been like to pastor in these last few uh, couple years with pandemics and difficulties and and churches torn by political con. He's kind of an overseer of a bunch of different churches. But at the end of that podcast, he came back to this point and he said, what an opportunity this moment presents us. What an opportunity we have in a world where everyone feels desperate. Everyone feels like they're losing power. Everyone feels like they need to fight for their right and prove that they are the ones on the right side of whatever you're supposed to be on the side of. For us, sound different than that. For us not to fight like the world fights. For us to to trust To live like we really trust that in the moments where we feel weak, we're looking for God to do something. Not trying to make it happen ourselves. Recognizing that in the moments where we submit to weakness, where we allow ourselves to be humble, that's where God works. That's the kind of thing I think people are looking for. People who sound different. If we're just fighting like everybody else, even if we're fighting for the right things, no one's going to listen to us. We're just going to sound like everybody else. I'm just trying to create a world that that I think is going to be good for my kids. Everybody understands that. That's not remarkable. But if I look at the world and say, I don't love the world that my kids are going to live in. I think it's going to be hard for them. I think they're going to have to face things I've never had to face. And that's going to be okay. Because it's not based on whether I can make it the world that I want it to be for them. I trust God is going to show up and do what he has always done. Do what I trust he's done in Christ. Do what he's done throughout all the Old Testament. Do what he promises to do for his people. To save them. To save the context that they're in through weakness. Romans 12, and I'll close with this. Romans 12 says... Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. It's 1221. And what he's talking about there is not that we fight and destroy evil, but that in the way we respond to evil, we respond as Christ did, that we don't return reviling with reviling, that we turn the other cheek, that we serve our enemies. And we do not be overcome by evil. We do not become evil as we seek good. But rather we trust God to be what he has always been. Because we know, Romans 1.25, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. That is our hope. And so let us live in a way as if we truly believe that. Thank you.